Welcome to Counter Apologetics. Welcome to Counter Apologetics. I'm your host, Emerson Green, and my guest today is Tarek D. LaCour. Tarek is the author of the blog The Scientistic Stance. He's a PhD student in philosophy and an MS student in psychology, with future affiliations with the Anderson and Bernard Labs, the former working on perception and the latter on neuroimaging. Tarek is a philosopher and cognitive scientist whose primary research interests are in the philosophy of psychology, cognitive science, and bioethics. He also writes about politics, in his words, from a conservative point of view, and also on religion, from his perspective as a member of the LDS, or Mormon Church. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Tarek D. LaCour. So Tarek, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Emerson, for having me. Happy to be here. And um, your name is pronounced Tarek. For the record, I am not mispronouncing it. No, you're one of the few people who actually pronounce it correctly. Lots of people say Tariq or Tarek or something like that. And I always have to correct them, which is annoying. But don't blame me. Blame my mother, I guess. <laughs> okay. I'll be sure to do that. Um, so I want to uh, impress upon people that, you know, this isn't a debate where I'll be, like, turning... Well, it's not a debate at all, but it's not going to be a debate where I'm going to be like turning the screws of the, uh, you know, minutia of like the Book of Abraham or Joseph Smith's like sexual proclivities or something like that. Um, I want to just talk about Mormonism and learn more about it and also just pass on some of the things I've learned because they've been very surprising to me. Um, I've somehow just gone uh, most of my life and just missed uh, several very interesting things about Mormonism. Um so if you would like to hear a debate uh, between Mormons and non-Mormons about those kind of standard apologetics, then uh, listen to any other conversation between Mormons and non-Mormons. But um, you're not really a Mormon apologist in the sense that you have like a, like a website called like mormonapologetics.com or something. You're just a philosopher and cognitive scientist who happens to be a Mormon. Um, so you do have this unusual web of beliefs, which I'm sure will come up at some point. Um, and I do want to better understand how you see the world with, um, you know, scientism and illusionism and empiricism and how that fits with Mormonism. Um, but, you know, just one more pitch to the audience that I wanted to make really quick. Um, on the off chance that the listeners to this atheist podcast are not terribly sympathetic to Mormonism, um, I think it's necessary to understand a position before you can properly critique it. So... Um, it's obviously useful to get an accurate picture of Mormonism instead of just punching a straw man. Um, so that said, I do want to eventually make a case for atheism that's a little more tailored to the LDS worldview, but I obviously can't do that until I have a better understanding of the LDS worldview and how it differs from evangelicals and Catholics and Calvinists and so on. So um, yeah, I mean, about a year ago, maybe, I started learning more about Mormonism, this stuff that was very surprising to me from you primarily and from Joseph of LDS philosophy. Um, 
And there are some really fascinating ways in which uh, LDS teachings diverge dramatically from like Catholic and, and Protestant theology. So it's not, as I thought, Christianity plus a bunch of weird, implausible things, which I think is how a lot of people... That's how Sam Harris defines Mormonism. Right. Yeah. No. And I mean, that seems intuitive for a lot of people because it's like, okay, that's Christianity, but they seem to have added a bunch of things. So that would make it like the least plausible form of Christianity, Christianity plus a bunch of other stuff. But it's not, that's not accurate. It is really just kind of its own thing. So that's mainly what I hope to explore is like, uh, you know, these differences between Mormonism and other forms of Christianity that once again, are really surprising. <laughs> So um, is there anything that you wanted to uh, say before we uh, before we jump into that? No, but I thank you for that approach. It's, it's getting rarer and rarer these days. So I think we're in agreement, though, that some of these differences do amount to advantages for Mormonism. And I mean, we can talk about as many as you like, but um, I have some I have some in mind. Um, I guess we should start with perfect being theism. So uh, Mormons don't accept perfect being theism. Could you outline what perfect being theism is and how it stands in contrast with the LDS conception of God? Yes. As I understand it, and you correct, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, perfect being theism starts with the posit that God is the greatest conceivable being. This would be the being that Anselm talks about <clears throat> in his ontological argument, and that has carried over not just across Roman Catholics as Anselm was, but Protestants, Orthodox, other Christian traditions think of God as the greatest conceivable being, meaning if think of the greatest conceivable being and whatever being that is, that's what God is. And if you can conceive of something greater than that, then that would be God. So that would be their type of starting point. And they would, then you'd have to think, if, if you think about this being, through conceptual analysis, which is the, a lot of the, the philosophical tool that is often used in this type of theology, <clears throat> you would then say that God is a uh, immaterial being because matter is perishable, so God couldn't be subject to that. God would have to be a necessary being, meaning his non-existence would have to be impossible. He'd have to be all-powerful because if, there, if he wasn't all-powerful, then there could be something that could thwart his will, all-knowing, same same sort of thing. So this would be the greatest conceivable being. Um, Latter-day Saints, the, who are also known as Mormons because of their belief in the Book of Mormon, and by the way, if you, you can call me a Latter-day Saint or a Mormon, doesn't bother me, but they would not agree with that for a number of reasons. Um, one, I, I, but it would real, but it, but the reason they would disagree would be, would depending on how you define Latter-day Saint theology, there's lots of camps within it. Uh, some more, some Latter-day Saints would think that all people are necessary beings in some sense. So it wouldn't make God any greater to be a necessary being because all persons are necessary beings. Um, Latter-day Saints believe before you came to the earth that you existed as a material spirit before then, and that spirit existed forever. That's what some of them would think. So if all beings are necessary beings, then it doesn't make God any greater because it doesn't make him any different. Um, some Latter-day Saints would say that God is not all-knowing, 
in the sense that he doesn't know the future. Um, their, their way of reconciling that would be the future isn't there to be known, so God doesn't have to know it, and it's no, def it's no fault on his knowledge. That's also consistent with uh, what is commonly known as open theism. Lots of Latter-day Saints are open theists. So that would be, and, and also, but I guess most importantly, since most of tr uh, traditional Christian theology, and I'm thinking here of the Roman Catholic tradition, orthodoxy, pro most forms of Protestantism, they would see God as an immaterial being, and Latter-day Saints think that God is a material being, then it would seem God couldn't be the greatest conceivable being if by greatest conceivable that would mean immaterial and not bound by uh, space and time. So Latter-day Saints would not be greatest being theists for that reason. Although you could say, well, these things that people who advocate perfect being theism, the things that they're talking about as perfections aren't really perfections after all. So you could make a case that God is the greatest conceivable being in the sense of this is what's actually possible to be rather than logical possibility. Mm. So that, that would be the, the dispute. Yeah, and I mean, that is such a radical divergence because I mean, I think contained in what you what you just said and my understanding of Mormon theology is that God is a part of the universe. You know, he, oh. he didn't, he's not like, um, you know, like how many other Christians would see the universe as like dependent on God in some crucial way. He created the universe, but the entire universe is dependent on God in some sense. And as far as I understand it, Mormons believe that the universe is infinite. It's like past infinite. And um, God is a part of the universe. You know, he's a part of nature. He's not like separate from it. He's not the creator of nature in the broadest sense. Like he's a part of nature like us. That's correct. Um, a lot of Latter-day Saints would think of, pro or most Latter-day Saints would probably think of the universe as a metaphysically necessary being similar to how Sean Carroll thinks of it and thinking of it as infinite, eternal, and uh, forever expanding, kind of the multiverse type of view is very much implied in Latter-day Saint theology. Although how God is related to the universe as part of it is complicated. Some Latter-day Saints would think of God as somehow a lot just like, a, think of a human being that can do everything that's physically possible and God is that, meaning he controls all the elements and he can do all those things. And then there are some who would think of God in terms that are what's called panentheism. But pantheism is God and the universe are um, identical. But panentheism would be that the universe as a whole is, is actually God's body. So God contains within himself all of the universe and everything that goes on in it. That's an approach that many latter-day saint theologians have also taken blake ostler most recently has taken that approach in his uh four volume series exploring mormon thought or he's at least very sympathetic to it uh bh roberts another early latter-day saint theologian also took a view that's very similar to that and orson pratt did as well i as you well know i'm not very disposed to um <laughs> those types of metaphysical views that process philosophy likes to use. So I'm much more in the other camp. 
Yeah, there's there's plenty of disagreement among Mormon philosophers, and and from what I understand, um, uh, not to get too off track, because I want to keep talking about the nature of God, but um, there isn't really like a like a Thomas Aquinas of Mormonism yet, I should say. Like there isn't really like a like a you know in-house philosopher, I guess, who kind of is considered orthodox, like you know small o orthodox. Um, Blake Osler, I think, is the closest you have who you just referenced. Um, but, uh, I mean, something that complicates this is the fact that Mormons don't really seem to believe in, like, an, an immutable set of doctrines that, like, never change. Um, because you do have this continual prophecy. You have, um, I mean, they, they are called prophets, right? Like, in the yes. Mormon church, like, people who issue this, like, continuing revelation, which can update depending on the times, I guess. And uh, so it is kind of hard to create, like, something that even could be like an immutable doctrine, like here is what Mormons all have to believe in, like this will never change. Well, two points to that. First of all, you get Aquinas 1200 years into the Christian tradition. So it's a lot easier to have a really great theologian after you've been around a long time. Mormonism is less than 200 years old. So if you looked at the history of Christianity, just in the first 200 years, you wouldn't have had Augustine, Tertullian, many of the great uh, Christian uh, theologians so that's not entirely without its own it, it's just not improbable for that but i, I think the other point you were getting to is that it's impossible to have a self-contained mormon theology because all of mormon theology hasn't been revealed yet so there's more the um one of our articles of faith is that we believe all that god has revealed all that he reveals now and that he will continue to reveal other things i should point out though that doesn't mean that everything that latter-day saints believe is contingent and could change for example whether god exists or not that's not that's not going to be revealed that he doesn't or so there are certain beliefs that are are, are pretty uh much aren't going to change but you can learn more about what you already believe in that right. sense Right. God can't reveal So in other words, I, I think of it this way. Um, Darwinian evolution. We know a lot more about evolution now than when Darwin lived. So, but we're still fundamentally doing, we still fundamentally believe the same things of how species change, the process that drives it, those types of things. But we're adding more to it. And Latter-day Saints, uh, their theology is kind of, I guess, Darwinian in that sense. Um, so, uh, returning to the, uh, nature of God. So God, um, I'm trying to figure out how to broach this exactly. So did God come about by some natural process or did he just always exist? That is a great question. So there's a sermon, it's known as the King Follett sermon, where Joseph Smith, the f uh, founder of the church, talks about how God came to be God and things like that. So this and that sermon is interpreted at least in two different ways. One would be that, uh, as Joseph Smith often talks about in that sermon, Jesus Christ only does what he's seen the Father do. So on Blake Osler's reading, that means that before this earth was created, God the Father went to another earth as a savior and, and performed an atoning sacrifice for that world. And that in like manner, Jesus has done that on this earth. That's one way. So God has always been God, but God is 
changed in kind of his orientation, as it were. Maybe that's not the right word, but I think that's clear enough. Uh, on another view, there would be the view you just enunciated that God wasn't always God. God came to be God, meaning learning uh, the natural laws of the universe, founding those things, going through a process of salvation. And in like manner, other people can do that as well. This is where the idea of Mormons believe they can become gods comes from. So that type of view. Um, my own view would be that due to the materialism or physicalism of Latter-day Saint beliefs, as I mentioned earlier, even spirits are considered material beings by Latter-day Saints. Since um, matter is made up of parts and, you know, it takes time for the parts to come together to form and be individuated, uh, I have a hard time with the A belief, meaning that God was always God that that seems like it's trying to like hang on to the earlier christian tradition of god as being us being assay or aseity or things like that i think uh, a, a consistent physicalist would have to give that up so i would take the b approach which is the approach i would say the common latter-day saint probably has among latter-day saint theologians some are more open to osler's view but uh, but but even within Mormon uh, theological cir circles, among those who are philosophers or have training in theology, I think the B theory is more uh, is more is the more popular one. Yeah, no, I, I spoke to some Mormon missionaries a few months ago, and um, they were all about it. Like, and I had mentioned that to Joseph as well, and he was like, "Oh yeah, the uh, like the Mormon laity is very into theosis, I think it's called." Um, but yeah, the whole process of becoming like god like the first time the missionaries mentioned that to me um they said something about like yeah and you know someday you know we could become like god and i the, that just kind of like went in one ear and out the other where i was like oh they mean like become like better people or something and then like a couple of weeks later it really dawned on me i was like oh wait no they mean literally become like god <laughs> and uh i mean that is um that's a pretty radical divergence from from all other forms of Christianity. This is not like Christianity plus something else. Like conceiving of God as a part of nature, as a part of the physical universe, um, who became God, who is some who is a being that was more like us, and then uh, you know, became God through a process, and we could also become gods of our own universes, I think is how it goes. Um so, yeah, something I mean, something like that, yeah. Yeah, I mean, and like in this process of ordinary people becoming God and creating ordinary people who could become God. Like that process goes back infinitely. It's a, it's an infinite chain of, of that kind of being and becoming. Yes. I think also this is important. Although some Latter-day Saints, Blake Osler is also big on the A theory of time. I think this view really only makes sense if the B theory is true. That's how you can get an infinite regression. If the, if the A theory is true, you, it seems you couldn't get the infinite progression that you need. You need a, a direct starting point. <clears throat> I'm not big on uh, philosophy of time, so I couldn't possibly um, comment on that. <laughs> but, yeah, well, I'm just just throwing it out there. The, the reason I bring it up is because it's, and, and I want to stress this too, I don't think science either proves or disproves a, a religion. It can certainly render a claim inconsistent. 
but given the way I think uh, modern quantum mechanics is going and modern physics, the B theory of time is becoming the more predominant theory is it makes a lot more sense of how to fuse relativity with quantum mechanics. So what Latter-day Saints at least can take heart in is they don't have to rebuff against science. They can, their, their belief is consistent with it. Doesn't mean that it proves it at all, just that it's consistent. Um, okay, we're definitely going to talk about your um, more general views about science and empiricism. Um, we'll get to that in a moment. Um, there's just one other thing I wanted to mention about the nature of God, I guess, um, before we move on to some other topics, which is, um, oh, you know what? I lied. There are actually two more things I wanted to mention about the nature of God. Um, the first one has to do with design arguments, and the second one has to do with arguments from evil. So um, let's start you're, with- You're, two, you're two, of your, two of your favorite ones that oh, yeah. probably stem from our mutual friend, David Hume. Um, yeah, definitely the design part. Um, but um, I, let's start with the with the problem of evil, since that bears more directly on it. So, um, God is, uh, according to Mormon theology, he is omnipotent. But it's a quite different analysis of omnipotence, I think, than the greatest possible being sort of can do anything that's logically possible sort of analysis that you'll hear from other Christians. Um, you know. Uh, like Catholics and evangelicals and so on, like they believe that most of them believe that God can do anything logically possible. They don't go as far as Descartes as thinking God can do everything logically possible and anything logically impossible. Um, so the kind of like in a nutshell analysis of omnipotence that I usually throw out there that most people seem okay with is like God can do anything logically possible that's consistent with his moral nature. So he's bound by logical possibility, and he's also bound by the fact that he's a good being who's not going to do evil things. Um, so Mormons reject that analysis. They still think that God is omnipotent, but they don't think that God can do anything logically possible. Um, and we were talking about some of the nuances of this um, earlier on the phone, actually. But um, I think as most people kind of, uh, as most people understand like logical and physical possibility, I think it would be clearest to say that Mormons believe that God can do anything physically possible, but as long as logical possibility stretches way beyond physical possibility, then it's, it is true that God can't do anything logically possible for Mormons. Right. <clears throat> yeah. They're, um, I guess in some sense, uh, although this is, this is more of my view. I, I don't, <laughs> I don't think logical necessity is that big of a deal in this, I, but I'm a human, so that doesn't, I guess it wouldn't surprise you. But yeah, I would say roughly God can do what's ever physically possible, but what's physically possible is going to be far beyond what we can know based on our current physical theories. So that, that, that's, um, that's still quite a lot of power, it would seem. <clears throat> yeah, no, it's certainly definitely... God can do whatever is sufficient to save can ensure that his will is recognized and that uh humanity is saved in the end so okay i think i think if that's not if that's not omnipotence it's um omnipotence or something near enough as uh jogwon kim said physicalism or something near enough something <laughs> like that yeah I, I mean it's definitely not you know misleading to say that mormons believe that god is omnipotent in the same way you know descartes couldn't 
really complain if people who rejected his view, they're like, yeah, I think God is omnipotent, but he can't bring about logical impossibilities. Like you still think God is omnipotent. And there are, um, for, for those who may not know, like if you try to look into just the concept of omnipotence and all the different ideas that have been put forward by there, it just, it makes my brain hurt immediately. Like, and I, and I lose interest in it personally, but I'm saying that like, there are so many, so many, uh, you know, tangles to, um, to navigate. Like there's so many different, it's, it's so much more complicated than I would have guessed, you know, cause it seems fairly straightforward just saying, yeah, God can do anything logically possible, but it's certainly it's there are things that the God of traditional Orthodox Christianity can do that the Mormon God could not. Here would be one. God couldn't, the Mormon God could not, could not create something out of nothing because they think that because Mormons are kind of metaphysical pluralists, they believe that there are lots of things that are necessary that you can't annihilate matter and space would be uh, two of them. So where at least on the traditional conception of God, God creates space and time, Latter-day Saints would think of those things as being necessary. So, so God couldn't create them. Yeah, so th that's the and point. Nor could he annihilate them, so. Oh, yeah. Okay, well, so that's basically the point I'm trying to get at is like, even if Mormon God is omnipotent, it's, um, he, there are things that Mormon God can't do that like Catholic God could do if, if he existed. So, yes. um, yeah, that's basically the point. So how that bears on the problem of evil, I think, is it potentially, um, opens the way because again, because this is a different analysis of omnipotence and necessarily if you're talking about omnipotence you're going to have to be talking about a certain conception or analysis of omnipotence if you're presenting um you know like the standard epicurean paradox or something you could just reject the notion that god is all-powerful if by all-powerful you mean you know x y and z and it at least prima facie that seems to provide a pretty easy way like or at least it, it opens up possibilities for mormons that Catholics and evangelicals don't have because they have this, you know, superlative sort of God who can do anything logically possible and can do all these things that Mormon God can't do. So all I'm trying to say here as an atheist is that this makes advancing arguments from evil at least slightly harder. I'm not saying it totally avoids the whole problem, but the fact that Mormon God's power is more limited than evangelical or Catholic God's, that helps with arguments from evil um for reasons that i think are pretty well understood like i mean like it should be kind of obvious how limiting the power of god would help a lot if you're trying to explain evil but it does seem slightly in tension with something you said earlier which is that god is powerful enough to make sure that his will is pretty much always realized so i think that would sort of you know uh, rejuvenate the problem of evil enough that you could still run it against Mormons. But I, I will just say, you know, creating a, a less powerful God is, um, that's just, a, it's, it seems like such an obvious strategy for trying to respond to arguments from evil. It's like, well, what if God's just not omnipotent? Well, that would make kind of for an easy answer to problems of evil. Yeah, yeah, but I think what your what your skeptic friends, our, our skeptic friends, would say if God's not omnipotent to stop evil, if we're if we're going to take that away, how can we know that He's able to save us? 
and the same how do we know there's not some other force that couldn't overpower him and do well, that sa save us from what well from from death ultimately it would seem <clears throat> right okay so um, from death I, at first i was thinking of hell and it's like well he could save us from hell by not creating hell in the first well, place. I, don't, I, easy I, I, I said death for a reason as you know i don't believe in hell in that sense right i mean uh I mean, that's another advantage of Mormonism. We might as well talk about I'm that a, now. I'm a pretty staunch universalist, so even though I think you're wrong on the atheism thing, you'll you'll still be safe too. So don't <laughs> don't worry about it too much. We're gonna right, well worry about it, but in the end, it, you're there's not going to be any fire and brimstone. So don't worry about that. Well, there will be fire and brimstone for like what, like five people or something like that, from what the Mormon missionaries <laughs> yeah, told me. That, well, well, let's let's I'll, we'll circle back to that. I, <laughs> okay. I think I want to throw out the how Latter Day Saints would solve the problem of evil. Um, the main point would be one point of this would be that before you, I mentioned before, Latter Day Saints believe that before you came to this earth, you were a spirit, and that you just agreed to come to Earth. So, part of the reason that the problem of evil isn't so problematic for Latter-day Saints is because they can say, look, yes, what happens on earth lots of times is very horrible, seems meaningless and pointless, but God informs you about that and you consented to it. So God does you no wrong by allowing that to happen because he does so with your consent. You already knew before you got here, even though you can't obviously remember that, but that's, that's one point. That's yeah. Uh, I, I think there's, um, I don't think it's as simple as that. Like, I think that there. Oh, I don't are... think it's as simple. I'm just saying that's one point in the cumulative. Okay. Case. Well, we agree. We definitely agree. It's one point for consideration. That definitely, I think, does help. Like, if you consented to come to Earth, like, and every. I mean, I don't know what it would mean for like a rabbit to consent to come to Earth, but, um, you know, I I do agree that you know consenting to. You know this, does kind of. Uh, diminish the problem but i definitely would not think that it makes it go away i don't think any argument against the problem of evil makes it go away because you're still wondering why it doesn't happen uh i i, I think even uh so so no one no one completely avoids it no matter what you do i don't think that that would just be considerations as you think about the problem but that so the, the consent would be one thing uh, also, just within the physical structure of the universe, it seems that um, <clears throat> for to create conscious beings, it seems you can't eliminate pain in certain kinds of ways. So there may be no other kind of way to have a mortal experience without pain and suffering. That would be another kind of thing God can do the physically possible not just what's logically possible. It seems it's logical to create a world without pain, but it might not be physically possible. Um, that's another consideration. But more, and then also the fact of that while you will uh, suffer for some time in this life, none of us avoid suffering, more Latter-day Saints are universalists, so everyone will be saved in the end. So your suffering time was very, small versus you and there won't be an eternity of suffering for anyone so i think all these things are a cumulative case again against why the problem of evil isn't the same type of problem 
Um, Latter-day Saints who believe in libertarian free will, I guess, could go to Plantinga's argument, uh, his free will defense. I, Blake Osler has promoted that. He's a big fan of libertarianism and Plantinga in general. But I, uh, as a compatibilist, I don't, that, that obviously, that argument won't work for me. So I don't, I don't argue for it. Um, just one word on the universalism point. Um, I, I will happily grant that it, it, it makes Mormonism more plausible that it's a universalist religion. Um, but I typically don't invoke universalism when I'm trying to like play devil's advocate for theism. Um, just because I, I don't really think it justifies the suffering undergone by animals in evolutionary history or, you know, human beings going through, you know, seemingly pointless suffering. Now, just to say that you'll be compensated for that suffering in some sense, like, oh, you're, you're going to go to heaven anyway. So, like, the um, slogan for this is just compensation doesn't equal justification. And I will totally, again, I'll happily concede that, like, a world where people suffer and then go to heaven is better than a world in which people suffer and then go to hell for the crime of being a Hindu or something like that. Like, yeah, so it's definitely Or how about better. just a world where they're suffering and then no rectification at the end, just going into non-being. Right. Yeah, no, it's definitely better. But again, well, like you said, this is sort of a cumulative um, argument against suffer uh, arguments from evil. Not any one of these things is intended to uh, to totally eradicate the problem. Um, my own view, though, and I think I've told you this before, I don't think the problem of evil is a problem because I don't believe evil exists. I think that things happen and we project project our liking or disliking upon them, but they're, but nothing in itself is evil or good. Oh so God. I forgot you were an error theorist on top yes, of all the that's, other... Um, now, no, I, I, now I, I realize that that... Now, I, let, let me... Let people think I'm... A horrible person at this point and maybe they do maybe i am i don't know but if a person is suffering you know they, they've lost a child no I'm, I'm a father so i could i could i can i can't imagine what they're going through i certainly wouldn't tell them that i would do the best i could to comfort them or whatever but in some in some sense this is kind of not the even the error theorist way of looking at it it's just the stoic way of looking at it that there's what happens there's what you can control and what you can't control and when you get angry about what you can't control, that's where the problems come in. And I think this is a big thing there. So the problem of evil, while I, as a philosopher, I find it very interesting. And I think, and if I were just, I, now this 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 will be something interesting for your audience to know. If it were just on purely philosophical grounds, I was looking at arguments. I think uh, J. Howard Sobel's pre presentation of the argument from evil that would persuade me of atheism over theism if i were just all things being equal i think so but uh given other things i don't think it's a problem so i think i thinking of my i can th only think of myself and peter van Inwagen who who have said that the problem of evil does not bother them so i'm i fully acknowledge i'm the odd man out there <laughs> okay well i've I really don't want to talk about error theory. <laughs> so, <laughs> I'm, so, sure, yeah, I'm going sure, yeah. but you know, it's somehow it's almost as bad as illusionism. But um, that's another debate that's coming up. But um, we're uh, I there. I don't want to miss it though because we did talk about uh, your boy Hume earlier and uh, design arguments. 
So um, I think that Mormons do have a unique advantage in the realm of arguments from design because I, I do too. That, yeah, I think that Hume's criticism was, um, you know, really powerful, really convincing. It's I think the reason that he didn't get more recognition is because he didn't really come up with like a plausible thoroughgoing alternative like Darwin did. Um, but you know, well, he met, he he does mention one at the end. He's talking about matter just organizing itself. And well, he mentions like he mentions a few. It's just none of them are really. It's like they're all. I don't know. It's not that they. They're an embryo. They're not fully developed like Darwin. Yeah. Yeah. Um. So the thing I was thinking of though with uh, design arguments, it just has to do with the with the basic inference of trying to figure out what the designer or designers are like, you know, so if we're talking about the fine tuning argument or some kind of argument, you know, people still make this about the biological world seeming designed in some ways. Um, uh, but, you know, other arguments that are more respectable, like with the fine tuning argument or the argument from psychophysical harmony, which is basically the fine tuning argument, but for consciousness, um, you know, you still have to make this inference from what you're observing and you have to go from that to the type of designer. Okay, so you think it was designed. Well, fantastic. So what's the nature of that designer? You know, and I feel like that was one part of Hume's critique, you know, which had many parts, but it's it's one part of Hume's critique that I think has not really been like satisfyingly answered to my mind, where it's like you're like you're inferring a designer that we have literally no experience with in the case of most Christians. Like you're talking about something that appears designed. And then you make an inference to a designer that we have no idea if there is such a designer. Why not infer a designer that we actually know exists or like a, a kind of designer that is more in line with our experience of the world? Um, and the thing is, Mormons kind of do that. So they don't look at some of these design arguments um, and then say, oh, I know it's a type of designer who we have no experience with and have never seen before in any context ever. They say, oh, it's a designer like all the designers that we've had experience with. It's a physical being. It's not an omnipotent, well, you know what I mean. It's not an omnipotent, omniscient uh, being that can do anything logically possible, who's separate from nature, non-physical, and um, is the uh, you know foundation of reality and has this particular opinion about homosexuality or something. It's like, no, it's a being like us. You know, it's like the other designers that we have experience with, you know it's physical, it can't do literally anything logically possible. You know, it, I think there's still something for Hume to say about Mormon God, but I'm saying that because we're like, we're more like Mormon God and Mormon God is more like us, the distance between that sort of inference of like inferring similar causes from similar effects, um, it's just not as big of a leap as it is for other kinds of Christians who want to infer this designer that we have no experience with. Yeah, I think it'll be just important uh, for your listeners to remember the context of Hume and the dialogue. So uh, Cleanthes gives his design argument of saying, when you look at the universe as a whole, it looks like a machine that's put together. And when you look at a machine, you infer that someone designed the machine things machines don't just pop into existence out of non-existence so we're so we're uh justified in inferring that there was a designer <clears throat> in philo who many scholars think represents hume most accurately uh 
Hume's ideas are spread through the mouths of all three of the other uh, participants in the dialogues, but Philo's seem to be the one who doesn't contradict Hume on anything else. So that's why he's inferred that. So Philo says, okay, but when you look at design, it's always generally a few things. Number one, why would you infer there's only one designer? When you see a, when you see a building, you know that there was the architect, there were the, the foreman, there were all these people that go into designing this. Why say that there's only one designer, which is what Christianity wants to get? believe in only one God, or, or any of the monotheistic religions, believe in one God. So he said, you wouldn't be justified in that. <clears throat> and then he said, you also wouldn't be justified in thinking that the being that designed it would be immaterial because it's interacting with the material world. So it would be better to think of the of the uh, gods as being closer to what the Greek, the ancient Greek and Romans thought of gods as being powerful, um, but finite beings, something like that. So. It's interesting you bring that up because actually I, I was when I first got into theology and apologetics, I was uh, very interested in the Kalam cosmological argument. And I said, you know, I said, this is a problem for Latter-day Saints if this goes through, because if space and time and like design has to be from an omnipotent mind that's non-physical, this would be a problem for Latter-day Saints. So. I start, so I was troubled by that for a while, and then I was reading the dialogues, and then when I read that from Hume, I was like, oh, actually, actually, Latter-day Saints have a better account of that. Nothing to worry about. So thank you, David Hume. So never say, never say that Hume just destroys faith. Yeah, I mean, um, it's, it's interesting, you know, a bit about you is that you're always referencing Hume and Mackey and occasionally Sobel and stuff, and it's like, yeah, I mean... It, Mormons and atheists can kind of like Mormons and naturalists and atheists can kind of join forces for a lot of purposes, you know, yeah. and, you know, one of them, like you mentioned early on is against the ontological argument, which Mormons don't make. And also the Kalam cosmological argument, which Mormons don't make. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I do think that, um, that Mormonism I still find the ontological thing. argument fascinating in that I still don't know if I fully understand what it's trying to say. <laughs> but it's an interesting subject, but I I can't really I don't know. It's uh don't it's want to diverge too much on it, but I think I I just want to say I find the argument fascinating, even though yeah. I don't think it's successful. Yeah, same, same. I think a lot of people feel that way. Um so we kind of referenced this earlier about um hell and, and the afterlife and so on. So Mormons are universalists, as you said. Um, and I feel like as a matter of principle, as a matter of like intellectual honesty, I have to say this. So I was um, actually just a couple nights ago, I was speaking to someone named uh, Baxter Williams, who occasionally shows up in the comment section um, of, uh, of these videos. And we were talking on Discord with some other people and he had, he, he said something that I've said many times, but, um, that I've said less so these days, which is like, you know, why are there only two options in the afterlife? You know, like there's either heaven or hell for, for most Christians where, you know, people are not binary, like goodness and evil. It's not binary. Hume said that too, actually. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, but there, are, there's just this binary result for where you end up. You either end up in the good place or the bad place, even though there are no good people and bad people. It's like everyone's on this kind of gradient 
there aren't even actions that are probably, you know, unequivocally uh, good or evil. Like, you know, everything is on this kind of gradient. And yet there are just these two places for you to go. And then he said, you know, if Christianity were true, you know, or if, then why wouldn't there be multiple places for people to go? And it, like, I've said that many times myself. You can probably find older episodes where I say as much, where it's like, why aren't there like multiple levels, you know? Like, and, uh, you oh, know, there are. That, they're just they're just not in, they're just not form found in those forms of Christianity. <laughs> I know, and you know, I didn't know that it was one of the you know many things I had missed. You know, uh, hearing about Mormonism, which is that that is the literally what Mormons believe. Like there are different gradients of, um, you know, I don't know, afterlife realms, I guess, and uh, none of them are hell except for outer darkness, which, as I mentioned, like at least what the missionaries told me, like maybe five people will end up. So if you're not in the bottom. Uh, percentile of uh, people who have ever lived. Well, you're I, I actually, but I, but I, I would say even even that will have an an end. I think God will even. I, I'm with Oregon on this. I think God will even redeem Satan and the fallen angels. So God will save everybody. Right, but even so, so I'm a I'm a full blown heretic of the Christians. <laughs> um, but definitely, I mean, this is kind of uh, I don't know about what you just said, but universalism is definitely the standard Mormon view. Um, yeah. Or, or some something like it. I mean, there are different ways of looking at it. Yeah. Well, I mean, so there are these. Um, what is it? The celestial, telestial, and uh, there are different there kingdoms of of glory uh, that are to become like God would be the celestial kingdom, and the terrestrial and telestial would be less than that. But all of them would still be places where there's no suffering or things like that, and you live eternally and happily. So. Oh, there's no there, suffering in these bottom no, two. No, there, there wouldn't be any suffering. Okay. So it, it doesn't matter where you would end up. The, the after post-resurrection, there would be no suffering. Right. So, right. I, yeah. For, okay. Right, because you don't go straight there. You end up in like the spirit world, and then you end up right. sorted in the kingdoms after the yes. after the yeah. return. But of, you're still you, you can I I uh, but you're still you're still physical. So even though dis, disembodied doesn't mean non-physical. Right. So um, I basically have to, um, like I said, as a matter of intellectual honesty, like give a point to Mormonism for that, because I, I had been going around saying without realizing that was the Mormon view, like, oh, if Christianity were really true, this is what it would look like. It would be sort of universalist and there would be gradients for different, <laughs> like that's literally what Mormons believe. I, I should throw out uh, that universalism is also preached in orthodoxy in mm -hmm. a lot of circles. David Bentley Hart has written a new book about it, and there were other Orthodox theologians that have been around, and obviously uh, Oregon was a universalist. So it's not it's not a unique Latter-day Saint tr uh, tradition, although it is probably unique in that it's fully integrated in the tradition rather than you would say some Orthodoxy, Orthodox believe in universalism, but it's not part of, it's not a core feature of the religion. Uh, for Mormons, it would be. So I think that would be unique. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I think that some of these differences that we're talking about, they, they all do amount to advantages for Christianity. So, you know, I've made this argument in the past, um, well, a few different arguments about the nature of eternal conscious torment and how it's this huge liability and it leads to these internal inconsistencies. Like the, the, the the standard Christian picture of an omnipotent, omniscient, all loving, you know, perfectly loving being 
who um, creates this uh, place of eternal conscious torment. It's literally just incoherent. It can't possibly be true if words mean what I think they mean. Um, and, you know, Mormons, that's not an issue for them. You know, so if you want to be like a uh, sophisticated Christian apologist, you have to go through all this work and you have to write this, you know, 100,000 word book to uh, try to justify, you know, your universalist position. Whereas for Mormons, it is just the default view. Like you said, it's just kind of integrated into the, like the ordinary practice. Um, but yeah, these differences that we've sort of touched on, we haven't touched on all of them, but differences in the nature of God, his relationship to nature and the universe, um, differences with regards to the design argument, um, differences that bear on arguments from evil, and um, certainly the afterlife and soteriology. Like, these are all things that are not just Christianity plus weird things. These are just sort of different beliefs. And I would say that these differences, okay, so in, in nearly every case, here's sort of the takeaway I've had as, as I've been learning about this, is that in nearly every case, Mormonism is either on equal footing with other forms of Christianity, and therefore no less plausible, or it has an advantage over its Christian rivals. So there, in my view, there are many problems with Mormonism, which we, we haven't talked about. But in every case that I can think of, it's also a problem for like evangelical Christianity or Catholicism or Calvinism or what have you. Um, you know, most of the problems I have with Mormonism are problems that I have with all forms of theism and with like all forms of Christianity. Um, so therefore, Mormonism is no less plausible for those defects as, you know, relative to those other forms of Christianity. But, you know, these, these other genuine differences, I don't know, it does kind of seem like it, it has an upper hand. Um, one other thing I'll mention, though, is I, I just made an episode, just came out yesterday about the meager moral fruits argument. Um, so I think that's a good argument. Um, I think it's a great addition to any cumulative case for naturalism. Um, and, you know, apologies to my, like, ex-Mormon listeners who I'm sure are more acquainted with the meager moral fruits of Mormonism than I am. Um, but it's kind of undeniable that Mormons have a reputation that you would kind of expect, like, if Mormonism were true, which is that Mormons have this reputation of being exceptionally kind people, um, you know, even in, like, those South Park episodes about Mormonism. It's just recognized that, like, yeah, they're they're kind of like unusually like they 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 are kind and gullible. I think was how it was. <laughs> uh, I, I I say that as a big fan of South Park, which I'm <laughs> sure most Latter Day Saints are not. But <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, I, the <clears throat> meager uh, the okay. I'm I've I've heard different forms of the meager moral fruits argument, which is there's different forms of it. I'm not entire, and I must say, I'm not exactly sure what the argument is supposed to prove. So, well, you should check out my um, yeah, critically but, acclaimed episode about this. Which has I, I, I will as do as that. <laughs> Hopefully, it will be uh, it'll be uh, better than some of this stuff I've read. That that's one of the ones where even when very sophisticated atheists like yourself or uh, real atheology are friends, they bring that up. I'm I'm always kind of left scratching my head. Like I'm not not sure what this is is like. Is this just an addendum to the problem of evil? I I don't know. It's any other argument. It's just the predictions of naturalism and the predictions of Christian theism are not in perfect alignment, and they oh, seem okay. to be uh, 
you know, the way the world actually is seems to line up better with naturalism in this case, because um, if Christianity were true, and, you know, there are, I mean, I really, I go through, I really only scratch the surface of justifying the, uh, the claim that the predictions of Christian theism and the predictions of naturalism don't line up in this area, um, namely that we should expect Christians to noticeably stand out from non-Christians. Um, like that is just, uh -huh. that's built into Christianity. And most people's experience with Christianity, like if I just throw it out there, like, hey, do you notice um, <laughs> like Christians being different from non-Christians or do people just kind of seem like not, people? Not, not particularly, no. Yeah, that's most people's experience. Um, and we make these kind of sociological and moral judgments all the time. And I think it's if it's fine in those cases, it's fine in this case. And, you know, that's basically all I'm saying is like, you know, if Christianity is true, you'd expect this. But we don't see that. We see something else. So, you know, it's, it's just like any other sort of okay, I, evidential I argument. Um, but what the point I was making earlier is that Mormons do have a unique reputation, you know, and it's like it's one of the few things that I knew about Mormonism growing up, which is like, oh, Mormons like, yeah, they, they believe all these crazy things, but they, they actually are. Uh, very nice people in a, in a way that like evangelicals don't have that reputation. Catholics don't have that reputation, but um, Mormons do. So it's like the meager moral fruits argument, whatever strength it has, it has slightly less strength against um, Mormonism. But I'll, I, I will, I'll, again, I'll do I'll you just... this one. I'll, I'll, I'll read your episode. I'll read some of the best papers on it. I'll do a blog post on it at some point. You know, I don't think there are really papers about it. It's sort of something that exists in the, among like lay atheists, I guess, but it's it's not okay, really well, defended. I, I, well, when I mean papers, I mean like sometimes I consider blog posts papers if they're by uh, sophisticated people. Okay, so. um, I and I just wanted to apologize again to my ex Mormon listeners who might be a little frustrated. I have very little experience with Mormons, and I'm sure that um, the people who do have more stories about meager moral fruits of Mormonism than I do, because I just have very little experience with Mormons. I just know them by reputation. Yeah, that that that's that. It's fair for your uh, post uh, Mormon friends to feel that way, if they do mm -hmm. feel that way. <clears throat> um, okay, so let's see here. We we covered um a lot of interesting things about Mormonism to me. Um, uh, I want to move on to you a little bit because um we've kind of been alluding to it as we've been going on here. Um, so you are a scientistic, you're an empiricist, you are um, an error theorist, um, which I can't even hide my disdain with that one. You're also um, an illusionist, and uh, um, what else? And, and I mean, and you're also a Mormon. So I mean, we're, what I'm curious and about- an, And a, well, you said illusionist. I, I prefer to call myself an eliminative materialist, but that's fine. Okay. Well, you don't think phenomenal consciousness exists? No, I don't. Right. Um, so I guess what I'm curious about, so... Happy birthday, Daniel Dennett, by the way. Oh, Today's yeah. His birthday. <laughs> the, uh, the, the great denier of, of uh, as uh, Galen Strawson calls him, I think. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the perpetuator of the denial and the great silliness in all yes. capitals. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, happy birthday, Dan Dennett. Um, you're right about most things except consciousness. But even then, like I, I mentioned this in an episode that's coming out soon with uh, Luke Roloff's where... Um, you know, illusionists often say true and interesting things about consciousness, like just because they go wrong in one area by my lights doesn't mean that like, 
oh, they have nothing of value to contribute. No, Dan Dennett's a great philosopher. I I really respect him. I, I just think he's wrong about the existence of phenomenal consciousness. But like, other than that, like, yeah, you should tell, like, it's not like I'm saying because illusionism is wrong, no one should read um, from bacteria to Bach and back or something like that. Like, no, it's, it's probably a lot of great stuff in there. The couple of chapters I read were great. So anyway, I don't want to bash illusionists too much here. Um, it's definitely wrong, but it doesn't mean that like illusionists have nothing of value to contribute to, or they have said nothing true or something. So, anyway, yes. Happy birthday, Dan Dennett. There's my very tepid <laughs> birthday wishes. Um, we're recording this on Dan Dennett's birthday. It'll probably come out in a couple of weeks, but anyway. Uh, so, can you describe <laughs> your core uh, philosophical views um, that I just laid out there? Like, let's start with a uh, scientism. Okay, so Alex Rosenberg is probably the most well-known scientistic. He wrote a book called The Atheist Guide to Reality, which ironically has very little to do with atheism. Uh, as he will tell you, the he was going to name the book Reality the Rough Guide, but his publisher said, if you put make it this title, you'll sell more books. And he did sell more books that way because it's a very, I mean, it's not a dense philosophical text, but it's denser than most popular books are let's say uh so he he kind of coins that term of basically him saying uh the physical facts fix all the facts so kind of physicalism and what are the implications of if you live in a world that's purely whatever physics uh psychology biology and the like say that it is and so a scientistic is a person that says that once you completed all of those sciences and, they, and they, I should also say, they think of philosophy as part of science. So they, when, so when people say, "Well, aren't you a philosopher? How can you be a scientist?" It's like, well, they they like Quine think of philosophy and science as co-continuous. So those types of people are called scientistics. Um, so that's so scientism is a kind of naturalism, but it's a very strong reductionistic type of naturalism. Um, most naturalists are not scientists, so I, I consider you a naturalist. Uh, uh, Paul Draper obviously is a naturalist, and I'm thinking of Draper's uh, bulldog here, Jeffrey Lauder. He's obviously very sophisticated naturalist. None of none of them are science. None of you are scientists. So that's a so that's the view. Um, you know, um, so that's not inconsistent with Latter Day Saint theology because we think that god is part of the natural universe and one day we'll explain why he exists why everything kind of goes that way not that we could do it today but that's the view there uh and empiricism would just be a a corollary of scientism if you think science is the only way of knowing something then you'll have to you know that science gets its knowledge through uh empirical observation induction abduction uh exper experiment so that's kind of the empiricism. Uh, so I'm a very yeah, so, staunch empiricist. But what were the other ones you mentioned? Well, before we get to those other ones, I um okay. Let me let me see here. So I think something that's important to take into account that you mentioned is that you have a much broader notion of science than some people might have. So yes. you're saying that philosophy is continuous with science, which mm -hmm. you know that does kind of make scientism more defensible if you're if you're kind of including that. Um, but I don't know. It sort of seems like how I think are you the really... scientism most people find impalatable is like Lawrence Krauss's type of scientism. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, like the the kind that just excludes any sort of like, or at least. Um, he like he has changed on that a little bit. He says he's fine with philosophy, but not in physics. He's so stupid. I can't. Which is odd, considering that physics has the most philosophy in it of any of the sciences. Just digression there, but yes, go ahead. I just I I, I have never liked Lawrence Krauss, but anyway, um, yeah, I mean, I think that uh, yeah, what people find unpalatable about scientism is you know it's it's central claim that the only kind of uh, or the only means to knowledge is science and like scientific truth is the only truth there is like that seems to be in conflict with the idea of like normative truths or philosophical truths or um, religious truths obviously um, so I mean I think that's uh, I mean that's why I, there seems to be some kind of conflict between scientism and uh, Mormonism for one because I mean it can't be all scientific truth can it I mean like the idea that there's a God, like, I mean, that's not a finding of science or uh, the idea that like God is a part of our mature scientific theories or something. I mean, like God's not a part of any scientific theory that I'm aware of. No, no, he's not. Uh, let me, let me uh, hash that out a little bit. Okay. So what, I guess the question to ask then is, okay, you've talked about what scientistics, that's the term, what they affirm, what is it that they're really rejecting? I think you beautifully said this to me one time in a text. It's like what you're saying is you really what you really reject is a priori metaphysics. So for your audience, a priori metaphysics would be the type of metaphysics that you do through conceptual analysis or appeals to intuition or deductions of just pure logics or something like that. So they're saying no, uh, you have to um, you, you'll have to reject those things if you're a scientistic. As far as how could you get the, how could you get to kind of Mormonism in there? I, I think it's important to say not so much that your belief is a finding of science, in, but insofar as would you? It, it's it's a way of, I, and I have this in a blog post, and maybe you can link it with your uh, to your YouTube channel. It's not about so much what you believe as how you would give up your beliefs. In other words, if, in other words, here, here's, a, here's a, a statement I could make to a Christian, which they would say no. If we, if we could have a, a self-contained understanding of the physical universe from smallest bosons and electrons or anything that's lower than that, everything. So we mapped it all out. Every, there's nothing that's not accounted for. Would you give up your belief in God because God wasn't a part of that picture? Well, they would say no. The Latter-day Saint, if he's a scientist, will say yes. So what you're saying is you holding you hold your beliefs before the tribunal of science. So you're, there's a way in which you would give them up. So if we did that, or as we continue to push uh, to the broader edges of physics, if that were to happen, I would stop believing in God because I, there there'd have to be some way we that God would be part of the physical universe if Latter-day Saint theology is correct. So. I think of scientism as a stance more than necessarily just a body of beliefs. That would be the the main way to, of thinking about it. Kind of okay. in a very similar way to how James Lademan talks about it in his paper, The Scientistic Stance, which is where I, the title of my blog comes from. So right. another paper to perhaps link. So um, I want to move through that that list of uh, of positions that you're that you're in sympathy with. So. We've got a grip on scientism, I think, 
and how it relates to Mormonism. Um, okay, so we started to talk about empiricism. So can you talk about empiricism and uh, contrast it with rationalism? Yes, empiricism would say that you all knowledge comes from sense experience, and by that they would mean uh, either you directly seeing, smelling, touching, feel those your five senses, uh, or comes through an experiment or kind of an inference from data. So that's kind of their view. In other words, what empiricists are really rejecting is kind of a priori metaphysics as well. That's also something that Boss von Frosten talks about in his book, The Empirical Stances. What empiricism really is, is rebellion against metaphysics about other ways of knowing things apart, that aren't part of experience. Where rationalists would say, and, and this is important, rationalists don't say that we don't know a lot of things through empirical testing. They just say that there's other ways of knowing things such as that we can know either through kind of intuition, this would be moral intuitionist, they would think that, or just if you just really think hard about something, you could see why it's necessarily true, such as if something is partial, if, if this thing is partially colored, then it's not completely blank or something like that. You don't need any empirical evidence to understand that. So that's what their view would be. Uh, you don't have to, um, I, I would say, for example, my friend Joseph Lawal, whom you've done a, pod, a podcast and show with, he's more on, he's more of a rationalist than I am, obviously. He's not a, he's not an, he's not an empiricist in the way I am. So more, so Latter-day Saints don't have to be empiricist the way that I am. And certainly Blake Osler is not. Um, okay, I mean, that makes sense to me. I think that you were going to be, or maybe you already have spoken to Micah Edvinson of Crusade Against Ignorance about empiricism. Uh, I'm going. I, I'm. I'm going to talk. We're going to do a, a podcast just on the history of empiricism and where it is now. It, it certainly empiricism certainly has evolved. We don't have this empiricists today. Don't exactly believe what Bishop Barclay or Francis Bacon thought, although it's a lot of continuity with it. So, but we'll have uh, and there and there are different ways of being an empiricist. So. Okay, well, I'll leave that to you two. I'll, I'll really look forward to listening to that. I hope that happens soon. Um, so We should do that probably. I'll talk to him actually about that later today. We should do that within the next month or so. Cool. Um, so let's uh, talk briefly about eliminativism um, and uh, how that fits in. So you and I are having a debate about illusionism versus panpsychism at some undisclosed time in the future. April 26th, Hume's birthday, I believe. Okay, we'll see. <laughs> it's uh, it's the most rescheduled debate of all time. I actually looked back to try to find um, when it was originally supposed to happen. I think it was supposed to happen in July of 2021, and then we've taken know. turns pushing it back. But... It's just crazy. Well, I can't disclose it this time what the uh, reason it was pushed back this time is, but you know what I'm talking about. <clears throat> yeah, and I, I've pushed it back a couple times as well. It's not any one of us. It's just somehow mormon god keeps intervening and oh yeah us... like actually you were the, the the one who did it this last time yeah. because it was supposed to be today i think <laughs> oh was it yes why did i cancel it i don't i didn't cancel the last one i thought you did well i think i think we'd reschedule no, i we, don't know we, we rescheduled this one because of me we were supposed oh, to all right that, yeah that, that's right okay we were supposed to do this last week um, right yeah but i had a, I had a doctor's appointment but anyway, um, it's fine. So anyway, um, illusionism, eliminativism. So uh, what is what is that? And, you know, the follow up is just going to be how does 
does this bear on you know your mormon beliefs in any way okay well let me start with what a limit of materialism is and say that illusionism is a type of that so a limit of materialism will say that certain common sense beliefs will not be uh, substantiated by the findings of science so that term first came from paul churchland in his paper a limitative materialism and the propositional attitudes where he's talking about we we talk about when how people do things in terms of beliefs and desires and that's a type we're making a psychological statement about this is why this works this way and he's saying that science won't vindicate that because it's in conflict with up uh, with other parts of scientific theories so that's a that's one kind of a limitative materialism other limitative materialists take that type of view of saying okay there's this view there are views about consciousness that are that are philosophical or commonsensical but they won't map on into any scientific reality and since science is telling us how reality is we need to give them up so hence eliminate them so illusionism is eliminativism about a certain thing so not all eliminativists are eliminativists about everything uh, so illusionism says that qualia or what it's like to be something uh, the, that aspect of consciousness that doesn't exist because uh, um, one, one argument would be something like this if you're a physical thing made up of physical parts then I can inspect every part of you there's no private part of you that I can't inspect but since I can inspect all physical things and your uh, your um your privacy would either have to be non-existent or non-physical but if physicalism is true then there's no non-physical stuff so your so qualia doesn't exist that's that's dennett's argument in his um paper quine and qualia where he really goes after privacy is the the big point um similarly keith frankish gives similar arguments in that vein and i accept those as well i'm actually doing a dissertation on illusionism as a theory of consciousness and the consequences of that view so yeah and we will I, have a debate about that on <laughs> april 26th it That's sounds like uh, it sounds like dennett made a great argument against physicalism where he's like well you know if qualia exists like they would in you know qualia are private like that's kind of part of their nature and physical things aren't private in principle you know like um so if qualia are private in principle then they're either uh, non-physical or they don't exist and i, right, I went through right. a similar I mean, it's, process it's, it's really an argument to either be some kind of a dualist or not do or a panpsychist mm -hmm. or to be an eliminativist but it's it, you're not going to be able if any of it you're not going to be able to be a either a non-reductive or reductive person about quality it's either all or nothing so that's that's something peter carruthers talks about in his new book uh human and animal minds where he talks about uh, quality or phenomenal consciousness is all or nothing so he and then he gives the point he says if you're serious about science you're going to be a qualia ill realist i think that's a bit too strong i don't think that people who aren't a limitivist or illusionist don't take science seriously they just don't take it with the type of metaphysical truth that so certain scientific realists do i think that would be fair to say yeah you could still take like an epistemic structural realism and right. say like hey scientific knowledge is great it just it doesn't tell you everything there is to know about the physical world which is the route yes. that i take where i i don't go full dualist i just say like yeah you know that private subjectivity it, it must be 
um, a part of the physical that is not publicly accessible. Um, and for clarity's sake, I call myself a non-physicalist, but you could be like Galen Strawson and say, no, I'm still a physicalist. It's just that's the intrinsic nature of matter. And that's not part of what science can tell us about. It has these, you know, inherent limitations. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. So I, we'll we'll hash this out um, more on a Dry Apologists channel on April 26th. Hopefully. And it will be, a, that, that'll be a live one. So we'll field questions as well. So looking forward to that very much. Yeah, me too. Um so, uh, how does that oh, bear wait, on I, I forgot to say how that throws falls in line with uh, Latter-day yeah. Saint beliefs. I would say, uh, since God can know all of your thoughts and can enter your subjectivity, that would also make it non-private, so there wouldn't be any qualia either. That would also, I think that would be true of whatever God you believe in, whether it be the Mormon God or the God of traditional Christianity. So, theists should not believe in qualia. Yeah, you know, I, that is something I've wondered is like, how is God omniscient if I have this private subjective experience? Because it seems like you just have to be me to know what it's like to be me. And, uh, you know, God either doesn't know everything or he's constantly running this little like, like experience simulation in the background. So that way he can remain omnipotent as, uh, you know, every bat and uh, human being and dog is experiencing things, you know, just to make sure he remains omnip omniscient, <laughs> like constantly running this little experience simulation, or he's just some kind of like omni subjective being who's like also seeing the world from my point of view as I'm seeing it from my point of view. And it's like, it, it would kind of make it easier, I think, to take your view and say, no, look, it's all publicly accessible. Like God doesn't have to actually undergo these experiences himself. I'm <laughs> I'm I'm not sure why this is really a hill to die on for people, but again, I'm I'm people probably at this point think I'm too far gone anyway. So <laughs> what, what what do I know? Um, okay, but, so does, so God though does God is is God subject to the illusion of consciousness? No, he doesn't. He doesn't. He doesn't believe in qualia, so uh, it's, not, it's not an illusion for him. I I I the illusion problem, as Keith Frankish poses it, is a problem for human beings because you need to understand or explain why do so many people believe that they have phenomenal consciousness if they don't have it so you you it's not enough to just kind of give an argument you also have to explain it, it, it i guess in similar ways to atheism it's not enough to just say this is why i believe god doesn't exist you need to say but why does why do so many people believe in god that's that's a, a further challenge. Now, that doesn't mean you necessarily have to answer that, but it's something you, that is a question that's raised. And that's something I'm going to certainly deal with in my dissertation. Oh, cool. No, that, that sounds very interesting. I mean, um, I think that um, atheists, if they're curious people, should want to answer why do so many people believe in God, even though it's not really necessary, I think, to um, to be an atheist. But it is certainly something you'd want to explain. And um, I think just saying, oh, because people commit lots of informal logical fallacies, I don't think that's a very convincing explanation. Um, but yeah, I, I'm sort of sympathetic to the, uh, sort of sympathetic to like the byproduct theory of religion where, you know, we have this hyperactive agency detection and, um, you know, we kind of see intention and mentality when it's not always there. Um, and, uh, I think that can go, I guess if my view is way. right, it's never there, is it? 
Well, no, it's, it's there in a sense. It's just you'd have to be more precise about how you're talking about it. Like, yeah. you know, in, in an agent. It was a cute joke. That's all. <laughs> uh, well, this is no laughing matter. No. no. <laughs> um, so I, I guess I wanted to, unless, uh, did you have anything else that you wanted to say about the, any connection between illusionism and Mormonism? No, I, I don't think so. Lots of, I, I will say in your, to your defense, lots of Latter-day Saints are very open and seem very sympathetic to panpsychism. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, Joseph and I uh, had a discussion about that on his channel for anyone who's interested on LDS philosophy. Yeah. Um, uh, I, I did want to ask though, so you, you already uh, sort of addressed this when we were talking about scientism, but I think that someone might naturally ask the question like, you know, okay, so you're an empiricist and you're a Mormon, so it seems to follow that you think there's empirical evidence for Mormonism. So, you know, what is the empirical evidence for Mormonism by your lights? Well, I would say a um, few things. Um, one, this isn't necessarily a, um, a point for Mormonism. It's more of, a, I think, a methodological point. If, uh, if, if God exists, it would seem there should be some way to find, it seemed that there would some be kind of some type of naturalistic way of finding him since that's the way we find out about other things. So Mormonism is open to that, it seems. So that that's one reason it even seems plausible. Um, I, would, I, I would immediately say to your listeners that I have not had any, <clears throat> what you would call religious experiences. So I'm not a, unlike Sam Harris, I'm not a spiritual person. I don't have a I don't have a spiritual longing to be at one with the universe or anything like that. I, I'm not, I'm not particularly interested in that. I believe in Mormonism because I think it's true. And if it wasn't, I would, the, the funny thing about it too, is if I cease to be a Latter-day Saint and I'm a convert, uh, my views on most things wouldn't change. It would be exactly the same. So I guess all my other views about things are independent of Mormonism, although they're consistent with it. Um, I think, that um, some arguments of natural theology, I've, I find the more, the more empirical, like evidentialist ones that Swinburne will talk about in the existence of God, I, uh, I find those persuasive. Um, the resurrection of Jesus would be one. Um, the design, um, <clears throat> certain forms of fine tuning, I find persuasive. But those are tentative and they can obviously be overthrown and things like that. So, again, I'm an evidentialist. So, I'm perfectly happy for people like Jeff Lauder or yourself or Relay Theology to critique me and show me the error of my ways. Maybe I've made a mistake. No, and I mean that sincerely. I think that, I think uh, if you're going to be, uh, anything that's worth believing is, and this is something I talk about in my dissertation too, is worth, so you stick your neck out on it, just like Karl Popper says. So if it's wrong, someone can show you that it's wrong. Uh, so that so those arguments, I think, um, I find the um, Book of Mormon to be more explainable as an ancient text than as a modern text. So that that would be another one. Um, yeah, I think those would be the the, the main reasons why I'm a Latter-day Saint, and I and I also I I find. I, I find uh, Latter-day Saint theology um, to be 
um, more more just be to be perfectly consistent with what I, I think human psychology the way that it is. I I, I it seems um, this might be your meager fruits argument coming up, but then if if Christianity was true, we'd expect people to be generally good. I would think um, versus. Uh, for Latter-day Saints, since they're more naturalistic, they're not surprised that humans are so bad. Um, that's a, another thing. So those types of things, those would be part of okay. a broadly cumulative case. I don't think there's, a, the reason I say that is because I don't think there's any one thing that makes me a Latter-day Saint. Like this is where I would stand on that. It's more of an accumulation of other things. Similar to reasons why I'm a scientific realist, similar ways I'm an empiricist or anything else. It, it's it's generally not one reason. Yeah, yeah. With most things, it's it's generally not one reason. You don't have just one argument for something that you believe. But um, um, there there are there are things though that I think a skeptic that I'm that as a as a believer, I think I I owe your audience this since most of them are not believers. Um, one thing that I find puzzling is it seems God could make himself perfectly obvious and he doesn't. So I think that's a, a point where I can understand a person not believing. Um, I think the problem of evil, while not a problem for me, I can see why it's a problem for most people, especially the problems of evil as enunciated by uh, Sobel and um, uh, Schellenberg. Uh, well, Schellenberg would be hiddenness. So I think those are arguments. Um, religious pluralism, it would seem that God could make it seem like we all converge on a very similar type of religion, but it seems that we all converge on different ones. Um, and, and I think all of the arguments of natural theology, whether you accept them or not, they're not conclusive. They're, um, you know, they're probabilistic. So they're all, all open to being defeasible. So there isn't like a rock solid argument that just automatically proves Theism, I mean, like the ontological argument would, would do that if you accepted it, which I don't. But so those would be the the points for for why where I could understand why a person would be an atheist, an agnostic, or a skeptic, even though I'm not myself one. No, I mean, I think that goes a long way for for me and for a lot of other people that you're willing to grant that, like, hey, there is evidence for atheism, you know, like hiddenness and and certain variations of arguments from evil and um yeah religious pluralism and disagreement and so on like yeah i i would make a similar case for atheism i would rely on you know similar data points i think but um uh as for um your reasons for being a mormon you referenced um swinburne's kind of cumulative case and i think i i did ask you this when we were preparing for this episode um you know, you do consider that kind of like Bayesian model comparison approach to be yeah. sort of... Um, that, that's culture. one of the big... Uh, it's important to bring that up. Bayesianism is a big thing for modern empiricists. Since uh, yeah. Hume talks about uh, in, that all knowledge is probabilistic, but he doesn't give us a theory of probability, unfortunately. So uh, Bayesianism is uh, very important to modern empiricists. So yes. Right. I, I wanted to mention that, that you you weren't sort of bringing in something new. It's that, you know, this mm -hmm. Bayesian model comparison approach is kosher for an empiricist to take. And it, it always has been kind of a part of, I mean, you know, not exactly Bayesianism, but as you say, like even back to David Hume, this sort of um, 
I don't know, inference to the best explanation, I guess, or a sort of abductive approach. Like yeah. there are traces of it that, that go back very far. So yeah, but if you're taking that approach, as you admit, there are some things on the other side of the scale as well. It, it's, I tell my students this all the time, no matter how smart you are and what you believe, there's someone equally smarter and equally is prepared to believe something opposite. So why do they believe that? So there must be some, there's probably means there's art, there's evidence against your position. And to, if you want to feel fully justified in believing what you do, you should always look at the arguments against it. Um, if, if that, if what you're, if you, if what you're pursuing is truth, you never have to be afraid of anything. So mm -hmm. that's what I'm, as my friend Spencer Marsh has told me, uh, I'm very obsessed with what's true. So even if that's discomforting. We, um, you, you mentioned your conversion earlier. So you are a convert to Mormonism. So um, would you share at all uh, how that happened? Like where you were before, what you believed before and about what age you converted and, and why? Sure. Uh, I was raised as an evangelical Christian, broadly construed. I was kind of a skeptic from about age six or so until probably into my teenage years so i um in, now now when i grew up it was a very biblical literalist church and things like that so you can see why i was skeptical if, if I, I i always wondered if i've been raised catholic how how i would have ended up but i was like when they're talking about the flood and all that other stuff even as a kid i thought it was like oh come on you can't really believe I was like, okay. Um, so I was very skeptical there. I started investigating philosophy, although I didn't know that was what it was called when I was probably 12 and 13. I had a set of encyclopedias that my mom had bought for the year 1990, and I read them all from A to Z. So when I got to M, that was when I came across Mormonism. I was about 15 at the time. It takes a little while to read through encyclopedias. <laughs> There's a lot of information in there. So, and I thought, you know, and I thought, you know, if Christianity were true, this would be kind of a more plausible version of it because it talks about a lot of the things we talked about today. So I sought out some missionaries and I investigated it for about two and a half years. As an African-American, it was obviously very difficult because Latter-day Saints have had a problem, have, have had problems with race and still do. So. That was difficult, but I came to be persuaded that it was true. So I joined the church when I was 18. And as Simon Blackburn would say, I haven't looked back since. Having said that, I've still, I still question um, in the sense of thinking about, well, what if I'm wrong? What, mis what, what have I missed? So I think about these things all the time. And, you know, so I'm walking, my, I'm thinking about philosophy and science all the time. So when I'm in the shower, when I'm walking my dog, when I'm just sitting, watching TV, waiting for something, I think about these things all the time. But that was my, my, my conversion was not a road to Damascus type of thing. It wasn't like William Lane Craig's or others. I haven't had any spiritual experiences. I, I find those very interesting as a philosopher, but it doesn't, it, it's not what happened to me. So mine was purely, um, thinking based and church based i suppose hmm. so this is why in many ways why i like schwinburne because our experiences are similar it seems
So it, it would seem that, uh, like me, appeals tra to tradition don't do much for you. Like the fact that Mormonism is a relatively new religion, um, I, I guess, uh, wasn't too much of a roadblock for you. Uh, no, I, I guess I just thought of it as kind of a Christian denomination at the time, so I didn't think about it. Uh, and of course, that's another thing. Do Latter-day Saints consider themselves just part of the broader Christian tradition, or are they another tradition? It's kind of like you, we talked about panpsychism. Is panpsychism a type of physicalism, so it's within a tradition, or is it a new tradition that's distinct from it? And uh, I tend to lean towards... Latter-day Mormonism is kind of separate. It's a it's a different thing than Christianity, I think, because there are just certain fundamental things that I think that there are differences on. Although certainly I can see the appeal the other way of being part of the Christian tradition, and I'm not sure there's much quibble with that. But that that didn't bother me in any case. No. Yeah, I mean, it it does seem like kind of a uh, contingent fact that it's new to us you know if we'd be if we were living farther in the future it, it wouldn't be new it would be an established thing that had been around for centuries or millennia and it does seem kind of uh you know doesn't seem rational to count it against a religion that like you happen to have been born in a time when it was you know younger like if you were born in you know uh the year 500 or something like you might have the same exact feeling about christianity in general um yeah, so it just seems like it shouldn't be a strike against Mormonism. I, I think that, like, whether or not people admit it, it is kind of in the background there where they're like, this is too recent. <laughs> like, it can't be true. It's too new, um, which doesn't make any sense once you interrogate it. But it, it does seem like... Uh, Christopher Hitchens made an argument like that, similarly. Oh, well, I mean, that's sort of... You're talking about the 100,000 years thing? Yeah. It's like, well, it's like why, 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 why doesn't God reveal the truth until so late late in human history and i mean mormonism would just be later so right you know. yeah no i guess yeah i mean that would be one of those cases though where if it's a strike against christianity or if it's a strike against mormonism then it's a strike against all forms of christianity because we're talking about relatively minuscule differences i mean humans have been around for you know maybe three hundred thousand years so i mean what's another couple thousand years in the grand scheme i guess yeah. but uh yeah um so I guess I do, before we go, I uh, want to talk about Mormonism again. And some of the some of the more common things that you'll hear since, I guess, um, you know, like I said, I, I didn't want to, like, turn the screws on, like, some of these, like, standard objections or whatever. Um, and part of that has to do with uh, just the futility of it, I guess. Like, I've sort of been talking about apologetics long enough um, with, with non-Mormons that I've recognized that it is basically pointless and, um, yeah, sort of futile to be like, look, there's a Bible contradiction here. Like, they're never, I mean, good luck trying to get someone to actually acknowledge that there's, that there's a contradiction because there will always be people who can set their mind to it and then make it so it's not contradictory, even though on the surface level, it is contradictory, um, it, there's just I've just I've seen this enough times that I have complete faith in any Mormon or Catholic or evangelical where it's like if I give them a contradiction and give them enough time, they will find a way to square it. <laughs> so I just I don't like I think there are contradictions in the Bible, but I don't really 
set out to try to convince Christians of that because it seems kind of pointless. Um, and similarly, I mean, it's like, I, I don't expect to like win an argument about like the truth of Mormonism based on some kind of anachronism or like apparent anachronism or apparent contradiction. It just seems like that, you know, as I haven't looked into it in the case of Mormonism as much, but it just seems like this stuff has all been answered and it's like you can find those answers kind of implausible or kind of like you're twisting yourself into a pretzel but they're there and you can always take the more liberal approach as well like you don't have to try to maintain some kind of inerrancy or whatever like you can always just take the more liberal approach and get out of it that way so i i don't really put too much stock in these sort of standard issue objections to mormonism because it's like look Christianity in general suffers from this problem, and I would think it would be incredibly self-serving to, for a Christian at least, to read the Book of Mormon or the doctrines, doctrines and covenants, or whatever, as like a literalist and be like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna read this like young Earth creationists read the Bible. But then when it comes to my text, when it comes to the Bible, it's gonna be very sophisticated and very uh, nuanced. It's like, look, man, I just don't really see any serious progress. Um, being made by like let's talk about you know the book of abraham let's talk about anachronisms let's talk about it's like man look mormons have answers to this and it's like it's just it's just not that convincing i would rather talk about the broader like philosophical issues you know yeah <laughs> sorry i know that's not exactly complimentary of mormonism or of christianity in general but i'm just saying like through experience it seems pointless to try to settle things in that way Sure. <laughs> so uh i did want to ask though about um a couple things that that frequently come up um whenever you mention mormonism we'll have um, to do this kind of a speed thing because i got about 10 minutes here oh it'll be a speed it'll we'll do a speed round here because it, i don't like spending too much time on this anyway but um first of all i wanted to hear about you know the golden plates as far as i understand it like uh like no one else was allowed to see them or something like i don't really know what the deal is with the plates but uh can you give us a rundown of that yes uh joseph smith was visited by an angel his name is moroni you see depictions of him on mormon temples holding a trumpet that's moroni some some temples actually have him holding the plates too <clears throat> so he was led to these plates by moroni by moroni's people moroni was a resurrected person so his people had, when he was alive, had written the, the Book of Mormon upon golden plates, and Moroni buried them, and so he led Joseph Smith to them. And then Joseph Smith translated them and then gave them back to Moroni after he was done. Uh, no, uh, a number of people did see the plates. Uh, there's the three witnesses and the eight witnesses. Those are found on the accounts. Of, at, at, their account is at the beginning of every copy of the Book of Mormon, you can read their uh, accounts there, and all of them held on to that until their deaths, even though some of them did leave the church. They were disaffected with Joseph Smith over other things, but they all still said that they had seen the plates, had seen an angel, and still believed that the Book of Mormon was what it claimed to be. So that's the that's the book. I, I guess the, the problem there would be if you don't think there's anything supernatural, Super, if you think angels are supernatural, I guess you don't believe in angels, so there'd have to be some other way that the book came about. So I think that, I guess that would be the problem. Although it's not entirely 
not because we think that angels are physical beings too. So we're and that the universe is causally closed. So that would still be a naturalistic explanation, but most people don't, if you're an atheist, you're not really going to accept the idea of visions or something else. So there'd have to be some other explanation would right. be there. Well, but there's I, no, there's no problem. I don't think in and of itself, you could just say, I don't, I guess the, the easiest way would just, if I were to reject it, I would just say, well, I don't think there's anything like that contradicts what I view of the natural universe to quote Hume, but I would just say, I don't believe the event happened if, if you were a skeptic. <clears throat> yeah. Now, and you know, like I've been saying over and over again, some of these things, like you can find analogs to them in Judaism and Christianity where you, I mean, like, um, it, Moses getting the 10 commandments. That would yeah, be the like, most easiest one. <laughs> that's kind of what I'm thinking where it's like, it just seems like people make these totally unprincipled critiques of Mormonism, like from the Christian perspective. I mean, so as for the contents of the books of, of the book of Mormon though, um, people act as if, I mean, sometimes Christians will sort of act as if like there are conflicts with uh, the book of Mormon and historical and scientific data. And, um, from my perspective, I'm like, yeah, that's not really a uh, unique problem for religions to have. Like, I, I don't really see it as um, something unique to Mormonism. Again, it seems like a totally unprincipled critique to say, like, oh, hey, if you take this text literally, then there are conflicts with historical and scientific data. It's like, yeah, that's also the case with the Bible. So, I mean, again, if this is a problem for Mormonism, it is also a problem for Christianity. You guys are on totally equal footing here. Yeah, yeah, I think what some people would talk about with their their um in the in the book of mormon there there are the, the common one is horses horses not being in north america until uh later times um there talks about types of metals uh, talks about different types of animals and things like that then they would say that that's kind of anachronistic or something like that um one way of thinking about that would be that the Book of Mormon, while it's a translation of an ancient text, is written in a way that humans today can understand it. So it, it kind of uses different types of angles. You could say the same thing about things in the New Testament or other things. Um, but I am not really, but I'm not a linguist or an archaeologist or an anthropologist, so I don't generally write about those types of things. I leave those to other people. But it's a good question. There's a similar anachronism with camels and Abraham in the Bible. Yeah, I mean, and but, pharaohs. Pharaohs would be another. That's what I mean. Like in almost every case, you can find some kind of analog in the Bible, and it's like, okay, so how do Christians get out of this problem with the Bible? Okay, what you're going to find is the same exact thing in Mor with Mormons. Like they're going to make and the I, same strategies that, that's going to go the same way. I, and I would also point out, and I think this is important: the Book of Mormon, like the Bible while there there's history in them they're not history books so they're kind of relating historical events but the the point of the book is not to tell you about a history historical event it's about to it's about sharing your relationship to god or and that types of those types of things so yeah i mean is this sounding familiar christians like it's just so funny to me that like christians will say similar things to what you just said and then turn around and, and not accept it when it's said by mormons it's like guys you got to find a more principled way of critiquing mormonism here but um i will say one thing about uh joseph smith though because it's commonly alleged that the book of mormon is a fraud that joseph smith is a fraud 
And I will say, as an atheist, I do not think that Joseph Smith was a fraud. Um, I just, I don't think that's a good explanation of what he was doing. And um, my stream yard is telling me I have a bad internet connection here, so I apologize for the quality for people listening. But um, no, I, I think that just as a matter of finding the best explanation, as a, as a naturalist, as an atheist, of what was going on with Joseph Smith and how Mormonism began, fraud is just not a good explanation. And I know you have limited time, so I don't want to get into detail here, but Joseph Smith was in a charismatic environment. I grew up in a charismatic environment. I've seen many of the things that he saw and grew up with. And look, I I don't expect to be able to explain it to people who don't have that kind of background, but fraud is just fraud is just not a good explanation of what was going on, I think. And yeah, anyway, I'll leave it there because I, I know you don't have much more time, but yeah. yeah. I'll just, I'll say this. Uh, I'm a big admirer and fan of Joseph Smith as I, I, I'm Mormon. I believe in him, obviously, but he was not a, but I can, but, but certainly he did a lot of things I think that are wrong and that deserve to be called out as such, such as I, I don't think here I'll, I'm going to both make some people angry and some people happy with what I'm about to say. I don't think Joseph Smith's polygamy was wrong. I think him not telling his wife about it originally, that was wrong. Um, he was very bad with finances, which is ironic considering God told him not to start a bank and he did one anyway. Okay, you know, I guess, I guess we all don't listen to God the way that we should. Uh, he could be very arrogant and could be very harsh to people. So he's not a, so I'm not going to ignore his flaws. He was a flawed human being, just as I am too. But I, I, I do believe in him as a prophet. So Yeah, I mean, Joseph Smith was flawed. So were many other characters in the Bible who were, uh, you know. So were so, so Abraham, God. Moses, St. Paul. Oh, yeah. They're, they're all out there. It, it, you're not, in, but in, and the important thing is, they're pointing you beyond themselves. They're just an instrument pointing to something else. It, so I don't worship Joseph Smith. So the fact that he's a very flawed human being doesn't bother me very much. Yeah. I mean, again, it's the, the double standards um, as far as Christianity is concerned are, are kind of maddening here where it's like they'll point out to Joseph Smith's, um, you know, imperfect character. And it's like, you can talk about David. You can talk about Abraham. You can talk about all these people who God chose to play all these crucial roles in the internal logic of the bible i mean and they were, they were some of them were not very good people um you know but uh it, so again it doesn't really seem out of line with everything else we know about christianity but i did want to ask you uh, one last question about joseph smith's alleged racism and if you had any thoughts about that i've heard some people say he's racist i've heard some or he was and i've heard some uh, evidence joseph smith as far as I know, I think he he did believe, at least at one time, I don't know if he always believed it, that lots of people believe that black people were descendants of Ham or Canaan. And he mentioned, it's not in his handwriting, it's in the history of the churches by someone else. Someone else mentioned that he believed that. That was one thing. And then another time, uh, Joseph Smith tried to like make peace with slave owners by saying, maybe slavery should be justified in certain circumstances, although he later became nearly an abolitionist, not completely. Uh, but no, I mean, sir, uh, he was he was pretty good for his time. He had, he had um, 
associated with black people, welcomed them into the church, was against slavery, said that there was nothing intellectually different between blacks and whites. It would be more later prophets who had the problems with racism. Joseph Smith was pretty good in that regard. Yeah, I, I've heard that, um, you know, Brigham Young came along and kind of undid a few things that Joseph Smith did. Like yeah. Smith said that-, that That's that, an entirely another show. Yeah, <laughs> like uh, just one, one thing that Brigham Young did. He said, okay, although Joseph Smith said that these black people were capable of prophecy, and like he endorsed some of the like prophecies, I guess, or prophetic, or I mean, like words from God or something along those lines. Um, he, he was he was saying I that no other prophet had said that black people shouldn't have the priesthood. I'm saying this on my own authority. That's what he was saying. Right. And he was saying Smith was wrong about this. Like Smith. Well, yeah, by by implication, yes. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, uh, there's so much more to talk about, but I think on that note. We I'll, might have to just put a pin in it at this point. Perhaps at another later. time, what we can do is you can have me back on, but you can go with your, your criticisms of Mormonism head and tongs and see how I do. Something okay. like that. I'm also thinking about having on you and uh, Joseph and maybe someone else and have a, a high council of Mormonism here. And we can take questions, I guess, that might result from this episode. Um, ah. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure Joseph and I uh, could do that and we'll, maybe find another person but anyway hey thank you so much for coming on i i really do appreciate it and um i hope it's not the last time we speak i can guarantee you it won't be thank you all right and everyone check out uh, the footnotes to hume blog which is out that'll be linked no in the show it's time. it's the scientistic stance now the scientistic stance okay i've got yeah. to change that intro all right well tarik lakura thank you so much for your time i'll talk to you later thank you Okay, so that was my interview with Tara Klakur. I hope you enjoyed it. And don't forget to subscribe to the channel below. If you prefer to listen over podcasts, you can go to Spotify or iTunes or whatever your preferred podcast player is and listen to Counter Apologetics there. You can also listen to Walden Pod uh, the same way. You can also support the show at patreon.com slash counter or patreon.com slash waldenpod. Um, both of those podcasts end up on this channel, but there are sometimes things that I post on the uh, podcast that never really make it on YouTube, so if you want a more extensive backlog, then head over to Spotify or Apple Podcasts or whatever, and you'll find maybe twice as many episodes as you can find on this YouTube channel. So thanks again for listening. I've been Emerson Green, and I will see you next time.